as always. <laughs> I say this all the time, but I feel it all the time. This is the best part. There's that one, that one, that one, that one. It's like all of these people suddenly arrived at your home. They did. <laughs> 42 people just arrived in my house, now 43. And their cats. <laughs> uh, I love this moment. Could you, uh, would you please write in the chat if you are calling, if you are somewhere outside of the United States? Just uh, in the chat, say where you are. Let's see. Someone's in London. Veronica's in London. Hello, Veronica. It's evening. There's 10 here, so it's six there. Uh, someone's in London. Someone's in York in the United Kingdom. Someone's in the Blue Mountains, Australia. Wow, I think it's tomorrow there. I never quite get it when the time goes that way. As you're watching people join, see, what, see how you feel as it's happening. Somebody in Calgary. Someone in New York. Okay, outside of California. Oh, Serbia. Whoa. Istanbul. Wow. I, I, I really want to talk in a minute about the, um, the function of wow as a response of the mind in terms of keeping the mind cheerful. Oh, there's Sasha. I haven't seen you in so long, Sasha. I'm happy to see you again. Uh, look at all of that. Munich. <laughs> Munich, Germany. Whoa, that's fantastic. And Woodenville, Washington. Okay, so now put in the chat if you're outside of California. Let's let, let a little bit of time go by so people can join. Spokane, Washington, Arkansas, Aspen, Duluth, Memphis, Seattle, Ashland, Chicago. Is that amazing? Mount Vernon. This is really great. How about um, the Bay Area or any place else in California? Someone in Berkeley, Santa Barbara, LA, Nevada, San Anselmo. Those are all Martinez, San Francisco. Oh, that was Jeff and Martinez. Was that you? Are you in? Martinez, Jeff, Forestville. This is fantastic. To be able to do that and to be able not only. Um, <laughs> when I went to summer camp when I was a child. And I was, uh, oh, maybe nine years old. I went to summer camp um, that about 40 miles north of New York City. 
in the Catskill Mountains. And if you needed to let your parents know something, or you felt like you needed to tell them something, or you really wanted to talk to them, you could call them from the camp office. And you had to go to the office and say, I'd like to make this phone call to New York City, 40 miles away, you know. And you'd say the phone number. And they would have to place a call with an operator who would do something mysterious. And I would be sitting on a little chair and waiting. And they would say, okay, go in that booth. And then I'd go in a booth and pick up the phone and they would connect it. Uh, This is 40 miles away. I can take my phone here and push some, tick some icons on it and be talking to my friend in France without any intermediary. (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing. What a time to be alive. So I think we might be, let's see how many people are here. 62. Well, people are still coming. Uh, I'm going to close my chat now so I can see because it doesn't let me see everybody on the screen. I'll sit quietly and just, I'll give you one minute to look at everybody on audio screens. This is great. Well, I will say something and then we'll have our um, Maybe we'll have our arriving meditation first, because uh, I uh, I was going to talk about what happens when the mind has. I was going to start by talking about what happens when the mind has a wow experience. Can you believe that? Wow, and an uplifting wow, not a wow about a catastrophe, but a wow about uplifting. And one of the things I was going to say is that. It really is a, 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 a um, when it is something that's remarkable and in some ways quite wonderful, the mind gets picked up. Um, I had a friend once who wrote a whole book called Awe and Wonder. It was a long time ago and it was a little book, probably still on Amazon somewhere. Awe and Wonder. And uh, my friend Mary, it's my friend Mary from whom I got the the prayer expression. My friend Mary is a, a, a nun. She's a member of the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael uh, for uh, 60 years, 65 maybe, because she's 87 now. Uh, a prayer that she taught me years ago was May I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. I love that. May I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for, for, for loving. I hadn't thought about that 
was not among the things I wrote down to say, but I just now remembered that. Okay, so let's just look at each other for a while and then close your eyes if you want to. And with your whole body, with all its senses, your eyes, if they're open, your ears, your skin, as it meets cool or warm, Your whole body is it lets you know where it's sitting or lying down or standing if you are. I do this, I often say to myself something like, be here now. Or being here now. Being here now with this corporeal body. And all the way that it transmits information to you about how this body is. As well as what the Buddhists count as the sixth dimension, in addition to Tasting, smelling, seeing, hearing. Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. There's another one. But the additional one of uh, not the senses of the body, but the fact of consciousness moving through the body. Probably touching the senses of the set, the, the consciousness that operates through it.
a little while when we sit longer today. I'm hopeful that um, we use the uh, meditation instruction, let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease and stay that way. The peace and ease that is our birthright under all the possible ways in which the mind can get taken up with liking or not liking or defending or being confused that under it all let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the bodies and mind natural peace and ease and just stay that way And then when you want to, open your eyes. So I'm very glad to be here again. And um, over this last week or so, as I've been preparing to talk this morning and thinking about um, well, a variety of things, but uh, mostly uh, thinking in, an, uh, in a way that was already appreciating, okay, I want to say this and this and this and this and this. I'm going to say them all. 
And so I came to two, two, two mind-easing conclusions. First of all, I don't have to say them all. I can say how many I'd say today. And we'll be back next week. That's number one. Number two, it doesn't matter what the name of the Dharma talk is. Every week people record Dharma talks. Every day people give Dharma talks that show up remarkably on Dharma Seed. And they all have different names. But they're all the same Dharma talk. How are we going to live this life uh, in a way that's... uh, rewarding and a source of gratitude how are we going to love this life and love life and take care of ourselves and other people and not create suffering in a world where suffering is ubiquitous suffering is built into being alive and how are we going to live a life that at the end of it we can be able to say thank you very much there was some dharma teacher i forget her name who died um, in the last 10 years whose final epithet, final thing that she said as she was dying, was, thank you very much, I have no complaints. I thought to myself, that would be such a cool way to say the the whole of your dharma. And I thought it would be a very good final sentence, it would be a very good way to be dying. I thought it would be also a very good way to live it. You know, thank you very much. I have no complaints, which would be part of wisdom. There's so many things in the world that I wish were otherwise. But the understanding that we are going to talk about, that things can't be otherwise. Things are the way they are because of because of other things that have always happened. They're like how they are now because everything that's uh, everything that's ever happened. And they can change course in the future. And I want to be a part of that change. But complaining. Uh, it shouldn't be this way, is so not seeing the truth of this is this is the only world we can have now, given what happened. And that's a source of, um, not necessarily a source of uplift, because of what a mess we're making, but it's a source, at least, of not grieving about it should be different now. It can't be different now. It's like it is. So I, 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 the, um, the working title before I got up this morning, uh, as of last night when I was putting this all finally together, is the working title is I was going to talk about the practice that we're doing is um, this practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness uh, is the translation into English from uh, the word vipassana, which is how it was in the language of the Buddha. And the word vipassana, we used to go, when I started to go on retreats, they had retreats listed as this is a vipassana meditation retreat. Vipassana means seeing clearly. We are doing the practice of seeing clearly. That it, it really, it would make more sense to a lot of people if we called it that now and we said People said, what are you doing? You say, I'm practicing seeing clearly uh, meditation. But it's not, it, it was at the time, I thought it's more mysterious to say I do vipassana meditation. But it's really, seeing clearly is what it means. And um, 
I remember uh, that one of the first things I learned when I started practice is that um, a story about Krishnamurti, who in the early 20th century was recognized um, in India uh, as being uh, an, an incarnate sage. And there are lots of people who brought him to the United States and established him here, that he would then be a, a major guru and a teacher. And he did teach a lot, Krishnamurti. But what he taught was not what they thought he was going to teach. He wasn't going to, didn't want to be important. He didn't want to be special. He didn't want to be in the role of a prophet. But he did say uh, the point of practice, the, the, that practice is, he said, you don't need to meditate, which was horrifying to a lot of people. What do you mean you don't need to meditate? He said, you just need to look around. You just need to look around and see how people are suffering. And more and more, I think about that. Uh, I, somebody told me a story about some family turmoil that's going on. Families are having a lot of turmoil. Families have always had turmoil. I think they're having more turmoil these days because life is so more agitating. We know more about what's going on in the world and the COVID is really frightening. And I heard some story about someone said something and the other person took it the wrong way and that escalated and how the whole family doesn't talk to each other. And those are so painful stories and, and ongoing. And I thought to myself, we so mess it up. We have this short time here and uh, we so mess it up by by becoming adversarial. And I think it's just so important to say the purpose, the practice in life is to forgive everybody for whatever they're doing because we're all in the same boat and that we all have to row together in the same direction if we're going to save the planet, save the world, and not mess up our own lives. It's, that's the whole Dharma talk. Um, how to live this life inevitably challenging because that's what life is for everybody in a way that in the end or whenever it ends, it's felt rewarding. It's been gratifying to be a part of. And the only thing you're left with is blessing other people that they should manage as well. That somehow we could get uh, uh, the, get our minds above the Sturm und Drang of getting on each other's nerves and say, wait a minute. I thought about that today, this morning, when I got up. I got up this morning and I got a phone call from one of my daughters who said, hey, hurry up, turn on your TV the uh, a, 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 a there's going to be a space launch. How many people might have to? I have to make this. Um, have to make it so I can see everybody. I can't do that. See everybody at one time. Anyway, wait a minute. Wait a minute. To do this way, gallery. Okay, there's a lot of people. How many people saw the space ride this morning? Not a lot of people. Anyway, my daughter called. She said, "Hurry up." The second uh, uh, launch of the Jeff Bezos Four People capsule is about to happen. And I watched it. And they had to stop and the countdown and it was paused. And they had to talk about whether the door was well closed. And of all things, you know, they're about to fly this capsule 
out past the edge of space into the blackness of eternal space and they're not sure that the door is closed. So <laughs> really, uh, what? And they actually sent down people to test the door. I thought well, that is really strange to think that they could get a, a capsule that's ready to leave, go off the launch pad and its door would fly open. That would be really terrible. <laughs> anyway, they fixed the door. It took an hour. Then they did again. Anyway, they, it took off. The whole space flight was, I think, three minutes going up and out past the past the edge of the uh the blue the the haze around the airspace around this earth and and then it turned around and came right back down and it was tremendously exciting to watch and it worked and they came all down and they got out they were okay and one of the people on that four-person capsule, in that four-person capsule, was William Shatner. How many people here know who William Shatner was? They know Starship, Enterprise. It's a long time ago. But he was there. He's 90 years old. My daughter called me and she said, I think you should watch this. It could be an aspirational point for you because you're only 85. And think in five years, you could go out of space. And would you do it? I said, sure. You know, first of all, three minutes, you're back. <laughs> the, the, the funniest moment of it is the commentators, as they had to wait while they were uh, on hold with the launch, they didn't know what to say. You know, you use up all the uh, remarks that you could make, and they're filling up extra time. And someone says they don't have anything extra in that in that capsule with them. They don't even have, they don't have instrumentation. They're completely remotely being flown. They don't even have a um, fire extinguisher. So I thought to myself, what on earth would they do with a fire extinguisher if there's a fire extinguisher <laughs> somewhere in space and they have a fire and they extinguish it? <laughs> what, what could happen? I mean, uh, it was just so bizarre. You could see people in space with a fire extinguisher. If they're having a fire, then it's really... Anyway, but the thing is, I watched it, and by the time they took off, it was probably an hour. Uh, and I was uh, exhilarated when it happened. And then I thought, well, I'm going to talk about the wow factor of exhilaration. And so I, 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 I actually looked up and found out that the first... Um, the first flight that Kitty Hawk was, by the Wright brothers went 120 feet from takeoff to landing, 120 feet. And this shuttle went out of the atmosphere and back down. And that, that flight at Kitty Hawk took, took place in um, 1903. So it's 118 years ago. And it lasted... 12 seconds. Before that, because uh, I, I, I looked this up, I did not have this piece of information on my mind. I thought to myself, and I thought, this is a miracle. And then I thought of, I, I knew that somebody invented something that uh, after it was successful, they said, what hath God brought? And I looked that up. 
And Samuel Morse said it in 1844 when he successfully sent a message on a telegraph. And his first message was, what hath God wrought? Look at this. So in a, in a, context, in a society that's in a contest, context of God's in charge, as a way of saying, well, what a wonderful, impossibly amazing thing to have happened. You say that, wow. Uh, and then you say in the language, what hath God wrought? And so that's 1844, but from 1844 to 1903 and to now where this happens and it's not commonplace, but it's great. And now we're here. I thought to myself, people are amazing. And people, people that, and I thought to myself, I wonder if it's all right for me to say this. Because people, imagine, look at this, human beings figured out how to do that. They also figured out how to do surgeries on unborn babies in utero to correct uh, different kinds of defects that might be bad to be born with. They, people have figured out all kinds of things. They have not figured out how to overcome greed and hatred and delusion. They have not figured out how to universally see through ignorance from time to time people at, uh, and suffering and now the demolition of the world and I thought to myself maybe I shouldn't be having so much pleasure about look what they figured out wow maybe I should be thinking so much money spent on this they it could be making Jeff Bezos could be donating this to the end of poverty and such and such a country of this so that they could do other things it's a it's a it's a it's a um uh, advertising ploy for amazon i could have a jaundiced view of this whole thing but then i thought why i you know first of all it's happened nobody asked me if it should happen and it did happen and it's amazing and why would i want want to dampen my enthusiasm about it or my ability to have awe and wonder. It's actually that ability is lets me think, you know what? People are smart enough to figure out how to do that. A lot of people are smart enough to <coughs> must be smart enough think for a minute. I'm going to take this cough breath. Somewhere, there's somebody figuring out how to disseminate to um, the whole world of you. It says we could do things differently. Look what amazing things we do. We could really do them differently. I, I was very enthusiastic about that happening in the time, maybe it's 10 years ago now, I'm not sure when, when there was the manifestation that over months or a year, 
we thought of as the Arab, we called the Arab Spring. We watched uh, videos of um, Cairo full of people all protesting and not, not, not having the government that they wanted to have that was democratic. And it was completely nonviolent. And there were literally millions of people in that square, I think. And the thing about it is they all had cell phones and the, the, and they were communicating with each other with it. And I thought, this is it. In the age of the cell phone, we can talk to the whole world at one time. Maybe, this was my fantasy at the time, hasn't happened yet. Maybe the Pope and the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu and... Who else? I don't know. Uh, could all get together and jointly send a text to the whole world and say, stop, let's do it a different way. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking everybody's going to think I'm a little bit losing it, so I don't want to even follow that along. If you're thinking she's really losing it when she's old, I'm not. I was sorry it didn't work out that way, but maybe it will. Anyway, I think awe and wonder lift me up and then let me feel more enthusiastic. I was so enthusiastic about teaching this morning when I finished watching that. Instead of jaded, instead of thinking. Anyway. It was like it woke up my mind. And... Uh, I, I I still have not gotten up to looking at my notes. I saw a thing on TV yesterday. It was a, a news documentary about recently in Paris, the artist Christophe did an installation on the Arc de Triomphe. Did anybody see that? Did anybody know about that? Anybody know about that? Wrap the whole uh, not he himself, but the whole Arc de Triomphe was wrapped in plastic, all of which was already recycled plastic and was going to be used again after that. So it had nothing to do with using up miles of plastic and miles of cord to hold it in place. But all of a sudden it was installed and it was there for a little while. And then it wasn't. And there were interviews with people who say, you know, I drive through that intersection every day I have for many years. And I never looked at the Arc de Triomphe. It's quite an elaborate monument, very meaningful, central Paris. So I never looked at it all the time. I go by on my bicycle all the time. I never really looked at it. But after that, when they took off the plastic, I really thought, saw it for the first time. I was thinking, uh, I was part of a discussion where people were saying, was it good or not good that he used up all that plastic or that he defaced a monument or whatever. But my own sense of it was that if everybody woke up 
and saw it as a reappreciated because I hadn't noticed before, then what that brought me around to was thinking in my mind, if we could just wake up and pay attention, like if something really changes our views, and wow, I never noticed this and the other. And so there's the last thing, and this is where I started in my original notes of what I wanted to talk about. I've been thinking about uh, something I heard from Joseph Goldstein early on. So, of course, for anybody who's on this call who doesn't know Joseph, but he and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg were originally the three people who came back from India and uh, studying there and started the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. And um, they came back in the early 70s. And in 1977, I met them and I met the whole enterprise of Vipassana meditation. And in the beginning, Joseph would respond to the question, are you a Buddhist? By saying, I think of myself as a student of the mind. And I really love that. Because I think that that's what we are. And when you say, are you an ist, um, a Buddhist or a, a Catholic or a Protestant or a Jew or this or that, it largely means uh, your family that you grew up with, what's the cultural context of your life? Are you a Southerner? Are you a Northerner? Are you a... Um, just that has to do with the context of how, in what context was your development happening? Uh, that's different from being a student of the mind. And being a student of the mind, in, in anybody's case, not just mine, does not preclude, you don't suddenly become somebody else with a different background. And I was thinking about that in terms of I'm a student of the mind, because now here it is, 40 some years after I began practicing. And the central thing that I keep teaching now, because it's the thing that's central to me, is I keep relearning what I knew for most of these 40 years and knowing it better. Uh, uh, years ago, people would give, it was almost, it was, it was almost an inside joke amongst teachers. Everybody would quote, the guest house by Rumi in their talk at one point or another. And uh, everybody would quote uh, T.S. Eliot at the end of uh, Four Quartets, where uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it is, we shall not cease in all our exploration. And the end of all our explorations will be that we arrive at the place that we first started and know it for the first time. Yeah, Moira is saying yes, I think so. But I think that's it. It's I always knew that things arise and pass away, but now I really know it. And then I think now I really know, but then I really know it. I think that we know it and know it, and then we really know it. So we can't not know it at some point. And then you start seeing your whole life through the through the lens of Dharma. You can't not know. However you want to say it, you could say it as life is difficult. Life comes with pain and difficulty. 
just period. Life comes with pain and difficulty. Uh, we could continue on that because everything is uh, ephemeral arising and passing away. We lose those people or those things that are dear to us, like the people and our youth and our vitality and our lives, all of that. Life comes with pain and difficulty for everybody. We make the difficulty worse by meeting it in maladaptive ways, which means by struggling with it instead of saying, well, this is what's happening. What should I do now? My colleague, Gil Fransdell, says that the definition of equanimity is to say, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I just love that. I just love that because in the middle of being upset about something, you forget that there's a next. There's always a next. Might be worse, but you don't know. This is not going to stay. And agitating and struggling with this shouldn't be happening. And the third noble truth is it's possible to live without, without added suffering. The Buddhists are very clear about parsing out pain from suffering. There are lots of painful things in life. Uh, physical pain and mental pain and emotional pain. Uh, suffering, from the Buddha's point of view, is the mind unable to say, this is what's happening. This is just what's happening. Now what should I do? And of course, the fourth noble truth is a way of uh, training the mind so that it's better able to discern I am meeting this maladaptively. I'm making things worse. Wait a minute. Let me just stop. I'll do it another way. Another way to say it is that continuing to understand things more and more is to continuing to really get it about the three characteristics. You can do the four noble truths. You can do the three characteristics of life, which is life is difficult, which are impermanence, suffering, and selflessness, which means, in more drawn out, the Pali words are dukkha, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Anicca means everything is passing. Everything is passing. Everything is really ephemeral. Nothing really is, actually. It's what it is on its way to being something else and the rising and passing away. But next to the last thing the Buddha said when he died was, Transient are all constructed things. Impermanence, which is, which we could talk, where we often do talk from now till forever about how it is to really confront that nothing is going to last. Especially when we think about what's dear to us, that nothing is going to last. How could it not? And, you know, how could I, what would happen if I didn't have so-and-so or so-and-so or my health or my vigor or my, it's going to happen to everybody that we're going to lose what's ever dear to us unless they lose us first. So, and all the stories that we could tell about the monk on the vine or the woman who comes to the Buddha because her son has died and he wants, she wants him to restore her to life. All of the tales that go with teaching Buddhism uh, mostly are talking about our inability to look at the fact that everything is temporal and you never know. I had so much years ago, 
years and years ago when I first married, uh, my mother-in-law, I was quite young. My mother-in-law had certain stylistic ways of talking, not necessarily. Anyway, my mother, full stop, my mother-in-law had stylistic ways of talking. And we would talk on the phone and I'd say, so mother, uh, we'll see you on Sunday when you're coming for dinner here. And she'd say, well, we should live and be well. I'll be there. And I thought to myself, that's such a ridiculous thing to say that, or God willing, I'll be there. We should live and be well. We'll be there. I'm really just checking the time and the date. I wanted to say, yes, we'll be there at 1130. Or we'll be there at two or looking forward to it or something. She always had this equivocal answer. Live and be well. I'll be there on Sunday. And then as I got old, <laughs> as she got old and then died and I got old, I realized it's all we should live and be well. You know, we say things as if definitely I'll see you later. I'll see you tonight. I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you a year from Sunday, whatever it is. But the thing is, we, we are all having, being here in a life that's temporal. We're, uh, we're really all subject to not being here anymore. And who knows who will be. There's a new book by uh, Ramdas and Mirabai Bush called um, We Are All Just Walking Each Other Home, and which is a sweet way to talk about friendship or companionship. We're all just walking each other home. We're keeping each other company. So that's when you think about those, the three characteristics of experience. Dukkha, uh, Anicca is everything is dissolving, everything is impermanent. Uh, <laughs> the, the image that always often pops into my mind when I teach that is that somebody once said to me, when my, my eldest child is, um, was a boy, my first child was a boy. And I remember sitting and holding this wee baby. And somebody was visiting me. And I remember them saying to me, can you imagine someday he's going to shave and drive a car? Because you look at this teeny, teeny baby. And you don't remember. You don't realize someday they're going to shave. But I remember that comment because I tend to remember comments. Not faces. I'm bad on that. But comments, I remember. And I remember feeling, ah, and that very baby, uh, not only, he, does, he doesn't shave so much, he's got a gray beard. <laughs> he's got a beard and it's gray. How did that happen? How did that happen? And he's about to be 65 years old. How did that happen? You know, where was I while that was happening? Everything is happening, happening, happening. And the fact that, uh, that uh, uh, the, the second of those characteristics of uh, the ubiquitous dukkha is everywhere that we suffer because it would be easy if we could say, okay, if it were all the same to me, I wouldn't suffer because I wouldn't struggle with what's happening. I would just say, oh, this is happening. Okay, I guess that's what's happening. But we don't do that. We are, we're structured neurologically say, this is fantastic. May it last. May it stay. I really want it to be here. We don't say it's all the same to me. Actually, we call that indifference. If somebody has, it's not equanimity. Whatever. 
teenagers say that sometimes, whatever. But it really, it's got a little bit of hostility in it. They say, you have to do this and this to a teenager. And they say, whatever. It's not a response that's full of equanimity. It's a response that's got a little bit of aversiveness in it. And it's not whatever to me that about all of my people. And, and we all live in that, in, in a, under a, a cloud, if we allow it to be a cloud, of vulnerability. If we live and be well, we'll see each other next week. If we live and be well, this or that. But that, that and, and what is happening to all of us is what's happening to all of us to, to, be, to be able to say, well, this is what's happening. I, I just uh, 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 I just had a memory of my friend Martha, who's been gone now for uh, way more ten years at least, maybe more. Um, I used to tell the story quite frequently, and I haven't in a while. And uh, I knew Martha very well. She was part of uh, a class at Spirit Rock. Um, and one, and we became good friends. And one day she said to me, well, as she was sick, she, she developed um, pancreatic cancer and eventually she died of it. When she died, she, uh, she, uh, she lived about two years with it. And her doctor said to her when she was dying, you know, you live longer than 97% of people who have pancreatic cancer. She said, that's not good enough. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter better more than 97 or 48 or 82 or anyway. At one point, she said to me in her sickness, during her sickness, she said, I don't think I'm being a very good Buddhist about this. I remember saying to her, well, I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, uh, I'm not just opening to the experience. I said, what's the matter with you, Martha? It's a terrible experience. You know, why would you expect yourself to be opening to the experience? You just have to not be mad at it. I said, well, she said, the thing is, I am mad at it. Truth to tell. So then I said, well, listen, of course, you're mad at it. It's unpleasant and it's an alien thing happening in your body. That you just really, what's important is that you're not mad at yourself for being mad at it. It's completely a human response. So she said, well, truth to tell, I am mad at myself for having it, for being mad at it. She said, because every once in a while, she said, when I'm thinking about why me? Why me? I, I ate right. I lived right. I exercise. I meditate. It's not my family. Why me? She said, every once in a while, I have the thought, why not me? Pancreatic cancer is a thing that people have. And I'm a person. And I happen to have it. She said, and you know, in that moment that I think that, I'm not any happier about having the cancer. I'm not any happier about dying. I'm just not suffering at that point. And that's a really important distinction. You don't have to like it. 
You don't have to be pleased that it's happening. You just have to be able to not be struggling with it. This is what's happening. So I want to go back because at the very beginning, I want us to sit for a while. I want us to have questions and answers. Oh, I still, I didn't do the third characteristic of experience. First one is Anicca, everything's changing. The second one is the ubiquitous present. Everybody suffers because the mind, naturally, when something is good, you say, oh, I want more of that. And I didn't want this to end. And, oh, when, um, and when it's New Year's Eve and people sing, uh, should old acquaintance be forgotten? I don't know about you. I always tear up about that. I don't like that. You know, it just makes me feel about all the people that I don't have anymore, you know. Anicca and the, the, the pain, the extra pain of having to make accommodations for this and for that and that and that. Uh, I uh, met an old friend of mine for um, coffee at a local Pete's last week outdoors and we hadn't we were we were not close friends we knew through some other auspices but somehow we got in touch with each other and uh about the same age and and in good health so we made up to meet at Pete's and I was there and uh she arrived and she had a walker that she was walking with and she drove herself there, but she had the walker. I was a little bit startled to see it. And she'd had a hip replacement. And she had something else. Her health is good, but she's got a walker. And we were talking about things change. You know, when we knew each other, we were both in our 40s, but now we're not. And this is it. And here's a walker. And uh, But that, I saw her coming from afar, and I thought, oh, so it's, you know, another reminder. And in fact, I would tell that whole story. It's another reminder. And she's doing fine with the walker. And uh, enough of those experiences when it's my time to have a walker. I'll, she'll be part of my memory frame that says walkers are all right when you need them. But I think that uh, in my course of of talking about what I know better than what I used to know is mostly Anicca, Duga, and Anatta. Anatta means that there aren't separate things, that everything is the result of something else and the cause of something else. And the whole of life is uh, the, the experience of creation as things are happening because other things happened and, and everything that happens is a result of everything that happened. The climate change is a result of many, many things, of course, uh, including hesitation and uh, inability to be moved about it or whatever, but also about uh, the wonderful truth about people are living longer. And... Uh, uh, so there are many, 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 many more people on this earth uh, breathing the air. Everything changes and not everything is and leaving off the valence of this is a good thing or that's a bad thing. Everything is a cause of something else. 
I used to, uh, although I haven't for years, said that my understanding of karma was that there's, pro well, this is not me, this is the Buddha saying, there are two kinds of karma, there's proximal karma and distal karma. So that uh, I used to tell the story always about my uh, then toddler uh, um, grandson, Eric, who's now 30. <laughs> and say, if Eric sits on my lap and sneezes, and two days later I have a cold, Eric's cold is the proximal cause of my having a cold. But the fact that, uh, but it's not the only cause, because I have to look at what are the causes that cause Eric to be sitting on my lap and for Eric to be there at all. And for Eric to have been there at all, his parents have to have met and liked each other enough to have created him. And that's already really miraculous because his parents lived in two different places in the globe and just happened to be enrolled in the same three-month course uh, in uh, a place in Italy uh, where they met and had either of them been in that course three months early or three months later, Eric couldn't have been sitting on my lap. There wouldn't be an Eric and there wouldn't be that particular life unfolding itself. And for these two, Eric's two parents to have met each other, first of all, means their parents have to have met each other and everything had to have unfolded. And uh, for me to exist at all meant my parents had to meet, which wasn't such a big deal because they lived around the corner from each other. So that's not so amazing that they met. But nevertheless, for my parents to have been, uh, my parents' parents to have been in New York City in Brooklyn, where they could have been around the corner from each other, meant that their parents had to have left Europe because living there was difficult for Jews at the time that they left and they had to get out. And the changing economic situation in Europe had to do with the changes in politics, geopolitically over the whole world. And uh, undoubtedly, if we go back far enough, it has to do with... Um, well, the fact that they were Jews in Western Europe meant the trade routes from uh, from the East had been opened and probably Marco Polo is part of my karma in the big scheme of things. So that there's nothing that isn't involved with something else. And I love thinking about that because when I, it, it, it's a directly amounts to my understanding, which is getting deeper every time I understand it again that everybody is just where they are doing just what they're doing because of everything that's ever happened to them and because of everything that's ever happened in the whole of the world forever. That uh, once upon a time, some people are going to remember this story because I tell it periodically. Once upon a time, a long time ago, when I just started teaching, I told the story about Having come to Spirit Rock to, of a Wednesday to teach, just like today. And uh, being a little late for class, and most people were there. And I was rushing down uh, the path to the old meditation hall. And somebody else came along. 
rushing down the path, and we were both hurrying. And I said, oh, hi, how are you? And uh, that person said how they were, this or that, and I'm a little worried because my husband is out of a job, and my son at college is having some struggles. And then she caught herself in the middle, and she said, actually, I'm fine. I'm fine. And we arrived, and we went in, and I taught the class. And at the end of the class, I, we led a meditation, we all sat. And then I told the story that coming in, I was with so-and-so, and she told me this. And fundamentally, she said, actually, I'm fine. And I said, you know, maybe that's what mindfulness practice is, that you know what's going on with you, and you have the perspective of knowing this or that is currently problematic in my life, but actually, I'm aware of it. And I'll do what I can about it. And I'm not blown away by it. So actually, I'm fine. Um, and, and I went along with that topic about the ability to be able to say, I'm fine. And it doesn't mean there are no problematic things in my life. Or everything's going swimmingly. It means I'm managing. I'm managing gracefully, even. I'm fine. So that's what I said. Uh, and that was almost the end of the teaching. I said, maybe if we meet each other sometime in dentist's office or in, in a, a, a supermarket, we see each other and we recognize each other as being people who are regulars in class, like a lot of you are familiar to me. And we say to each other, oh, hello, how are you? And the other person says, I'm fine. We'll understand that that's the password of the class. And it doesn't mean everything is great, perfect, wonderful. It just means I'm dealing with it. And a woman named Gwen, who I just recently met again after years and years, said, I never say I'm fine. She said, I always say I couldn't be better. And everybody sat quietly for a minute. And then they start to giggle a little bit. And then Gwen said, because I couldn't be. Nobody can ever be better than how they are. If you're in the dumps about something, you can't say, I mean, if you're really pained about something that's going on, you say, well, you could then say to yourself, you know what, things pass, this will pass, da-da-da, whatever. And you should, actually. But at the moment that you get asked, in that moment, whatever you're doing, if you could do something that was better, you'd be doing it. Nobody personally, purposely suffers. Don't purposely suffer. Which doesn't mean that every time I say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the dumps, I could be better right now. Maybe I can't, but then I couldn't be better. That maybe if I pull in all my, all my ways of meditating, and then maybe I'll begin to feel lightened or maybe that mood would pass. But then I could be better, so I am. But you don't know what's going to go into that. that uh, it's tremendously freeing to know that nobody could be better because it takes out enmity from the mind. This is probably where I'm going to end. Who knows what I was going to say? I have not looked down. <laughs> I suppose I meant to talk about something along these lines, but... No, I had something else I was going to talk about, too. But what we're going to do now 
is have a, a, a period of, of meditation practice. One of the lifelong hopes I have for myself is I am going to, uh, two of them actually, in, in, that I have for myself in the world, as long as I'm teaching. I want to clarify what the word practice means. Maybe that's a full stop. I'd like to make it not possible for people to say, not because I'm like mean-spirited, but that the question of, oh, uh, I'm so looking forward to going on retreat. I haven't had a chance in my life. I don't have any chance to practice. And that does not make any sense to me because I think every moment of life is a moment of practice. I am not trying to be a great meditator when I meditate. I'm not trying to get to be fantastic at Anapanasati, which is really constant, being able to stay with the breath coming in and going out. I, I do those things. I do sit in the morning and I do practice being with the breath and I do practice saying metta resolves and praying for people. I do all those things. But I am very much impressed with the idea of in-between times. Um, when I studied with Upandita, I think it was, who used to say in an interview, he would say, what's your experience when you're being with uh, the breath practice, sitting practice? And I would tell him, and then he would say, what's your experience? He did this with everybody. What's your experience in walking practice? And then he would say, what's your experience in the in-between times? And it really began to really impress me with the fact that there are no in-between times, that the whole rest, the whole of life is practiced, during which time you do some of it sitting down, your eyes closed, you do some of it walking around in your life, you do some of it uh, reciting um, or singing to yourself or repeating uh, goodwill resolves for other people. You do some of it going out of your way to talk something pleasant to the supermarket clerk or holding a door open to somebody else or um, visiting a sick relative or cooking something beautiful to bring your next door neighbor or for yourself. That every moment of your life where the mind is turned in the direction of goodness and kindness is a moment of practice. And every moment that you find uh, where the mind is in disarray for something, from something despairing or whatever it is, and you notice it, you say, whoa, look at that. I am moved to the, what can I do now? Which is a move of compassion. Compassion is the mind saying to itself, what can I do to help? I, I really feel strongly that it is not feeling other people's pain. Uh, it's just not uh, a way that I conceptualize it. Sometimes I, I, I think, well, I could be wrong, but it's all about how people use words. But uh, I, 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 um, I think about compassion is not feeling other people's pain. I can't feel other people's pain. It's their pain but I can feel moved by it. And if the move is, what can I do? 
to help. That's compassion, I think. Not don't tell me about it or I want out of here or any of that. If my mind can stay present to hearing about what's happening with somebody else or facing it or seeing it or realizing it, if it can stay there and say, whoa, what can I do to help? I think that's compassion. And I think it's all practice. And what I had um, planned, which maybe we'll do or maybe we'll do it next week, is that I would talk about some of the things that I talked about, the Four Noble Truths and the Three Characteristics and how they overlap each other. Uh, and also introduce, but I, and I have, the idea that it's that when you say I'm practicing a lot these days, I don't practice so much. It's not a chronological time of day, how many hours doing X or Y technique, but is my life oriented to what is what I am doing right now in the service of what can I do to help? If I sit down in the morning and I just sit there to really organize my mind and, and gather it all up, and then oriented to uh, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. It's it's not not part of going out and seeing who needs help. What can I? It's the same as saying what can I do to help. One of the things I can do to help is keep myself clear minded and clear keep myself oriented towards what I want to do in the whole day. It's all the same thing. So I I, I think that I will have. Um, that in some ways, my teaching ambition is to say to somebody that it is not how many, how much time do you spend practicing every day. It's um, what are you doing in your life? What, how is your life oriented? What makes your life meaningful? That's not the best constructed sentence, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you got it. Doesn't have to do with technique. It has to do with what's my intention. Oh, that's the sentence I needed. What's my intention? So my intention is to have my mind clear and my heart open. We can go back to my friend Mary's phrase to end with for a while. Um, May I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. Because if I look around and I really see that the whole world is suffering, that's awesome. Not just that they flew out of space and came back. That's awesome. Or that can, somebody can do a, a quadruple turn on, on ice skates or do any of the Olympic amazing things that people do. But that people can be kind. My all-time probably favorite line is life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And I don't know who said that. But I saw it in a, in a plaque in a retreat center once 
Life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And it doesn't mean to other people only that we can be kind to ourselves. And the other thing that I hope to do in my teaching life, it's really the same thing, but really reworded, that there's nothing to do. The whole practice is reorienting your heart to kindness. It makes you better. The Dalai Lama said as the first, the first sentence in a book named The Art of Happiness is the purpose of life is to be happy. And you think, whoa, that's a weird thing to say. I was sure he was going to say the purpose of life is to serve. The purpose of life is to liberate people. But I'm sure, but it isn't. It's the purpose of life is to be happy. And the clue in that, when I first saw it, I thought, ah. but the clue in that is that's what makes us happy. I think it's the only thing that makes us enduringly happy, feeling connected in caring to every other living being. We don't feel alone. That's again, come back to the circle around to Ram Dass's, uh, Ram Dass's phrase of... Uh, we're all just walking each other home. That um, how can I help? In any standard, we will do this next week. <laughs> In a standard Buddhist text, it would say the Buddhist path is sila samadhi panya, clarifying. Um, Solidifying ethics, really developing unshakable ethics, developing some awareness to watch the mind and see what it's doing. I'm a student of the mind. And the continuous development of wisdom. Now I really know, and now I really know, oh, now I really get that and see it, see what's true for the first time, and it was always true, but we, I know it better and better and better, so that sooner and sooner I catch myself when I'm off. And that I think because of the way that mindfulness came to this country in the 70s and 80s, which I'm grateful incredibly for because it's been my whole practice life, it was a time of people being interested in exotic thought, exotic experiences and mind-blowing experiences and uh, consolidating ethics doesn't sound like a mind-blowing experience. It, it sounds like, ah. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was not emphasized in the 70s. So we can leave that and talk about it another time. It wasn't emphasized. But on uh, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Toland has put two pieces of material on the, where are they going to get those, Toland? Uh, the Metta Sutta and the list. Yeah, I shared them earlier, but I'm sharing them again now so that folks can uh, open them up and download them. You can open them, download them, bring them next week. Uh, and I promise you we'll talk about them next week. Uh, because the other thing I want to say 
is that it's all practice and developing a life of kindness as one's main practice is another whole different, it's starting at the other end, not from Buddha's point of view, but it's where American Buddhism is going. I think where it started with a, an, uh, with a focus on uh, amazing mind states that you could cultivate through meditation and has developed around into really, it's about kindness and compassion. So I, I, uh, I'm happy about that. I'd like us to sit for a while. We're supposed to sit in this class. And I'm not supposed to talk so long, but I get um, inspired when I'm talking about something that I really feel important about. But this is what I'd like to do. This is the same meditation that I suggested we do earlier. Um, it was one I learned from Ajahnamara. And uh, when I first heard him do it, he said, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and just stay that way. And I did. And nobody raised their hand and said, what do you mean? Natural peace and ease. I don't have natural peace and ease. It just seemed to me that it was amazing that if you say to people as if it's true, because it is that there is a natural peace and ease to the mind and body, that their mind goes there. Doesn't mean that if you're in the middle of some profound experience, you know, here we are, uh, about 70 people, doesn't mean if the mind's in the middle of some profoundly upsetting or frightening or grievous experience, that it's that all easy. to touch into natural peace and ease. But usually my experience is that when I hear somebody say that to me or when I say it to myself, it's like a remembrance, ah, oh, there's a place under this where I could just catch my breath for a minute and not think my story. Just not think my story. Maybe the natural peace and ease is available with the breath going in and out, unelaborated, with particular emphasis on keeping it going on the breath. Or if for some reason um, breath meditation is hard for you because you've got a cold or have asthma or something or other, if you can stand up and walk back and forth, just walk back and forth, feeling your body locomoting. If those don't work, if you can feel your whole body getting a little bigger and then a little bit back and a little bit bigger and a little bit back, pushing your back against the back of your chair and letting the body come back down rhythmically as it does because even with breath complications, we're still breathing, all of us. I mostly stay with that, the body getting bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller. And I stay with the rhythmicity of that 
And then when it steadies my mind, I just stay there. And I say to myself here, or now, So let's try to do that for um, 18 minutes. I'll be mostly quiet. And then we'll have a period of time for Q&A. It's great if you uh, have your picture there. It's inspiring for other people. And if you need for some reason to not be in your seat, uh, close your your uh, video. But then when we come back, try to be with your video on so we see each other, if you can.
In a moment, we'll open our eyes. Be able to see who's together with us. And although we can't talk to each other, when we look at each other, we could be thinking a blessing. Think about what blessing you would send to everybody, a room full of people that you know and don't know. There's two reasons why I'm asking this. One is because it suddenly occurred to me that it'd be interesting to think about what I think for everybody. I'd like to know what you would think. And the other one is that uh, in those classes that people have blessed each other, the understanding that I've had back is that we feel better from doing it. So open your eyes when you want to. And look around. You can pick people individually and wish them well. You can just look at a whole page and wish them well. I found this mini, I don't have a bell. So I just recently found this mini bell in a small box on a shelf that I'd forgotten that I had. And I thought, oh, I should see if this works. And it does. And it's a very mini. I must have had it for a long time. And a long time ago, I made a declaration that I wasn't going to ring a bell. Uh, And uh, uh, I wasn't going to ring a bell. And uh, because it would sound like now we're finished doing that. <laughs> but uh, I just found this cute bell. And that, you know, and, you know, not to think of, not to limit practice to the time that the eyes are closed, but that the whole life is practiced. Then I decided, then I found this mini bell and I wanted to try it out. So, so much for that declaration. But I would like to hear from you. So please raise your hand if you would like to say something about 
Uh, how was that experience of meditation for you? Uh, these are all the different things you could talk about. What did you use as your blessing for everybody? What did you particularly want to ask about from the whole thing that I talked about? Anyway, there she goes, and he's got it. So thank you very much. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And may we all see each other. Uh, <laughs> what did my mother-in-law say? Uh, we should live and be well. <laughs> I'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.